0: In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 11, the election of 1828, an extraordinarily nasty presidential contest which picked up right where the tensions born in 1824 left off.
1: March 4, 1825. Washington, D.C., A small crowd patiently gathered on the Capitol steps as John Quincy Adams was inaugurated as the sixth president of the United States.
0: Not everyone attending was delighted, though. The rival candidate, Andrew Jackson, silently seethed. It was no secret that Jackson and his supporters believed the day should have marked his inauguration.
1: Which the new president certainly realized, In fact, much of Adams' address was spent trying to reassure Americans that he would be nonpartisan. As if to cement his point, he laid out plans for infrastructure improvements that would better every citizen's life, regardless of their party allegiance.
0: At the conclusion of Adams' speech, Andrew Jackson approached the new president, offering his hand. It would be the last time the men would ever exchange pleasantries.
1: Just a few years later, the 1828 election between the two rivals would devolve into one of the most vicious contests in American history.
0: Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast Original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar.
1: Today, we'll dive into the presidential election of 1828, a much more vicious rematch of the contest from 1824. This time, Andrew Jackson and incumbent John Quincy Adams would pit themselves against each other in a race that ultimately brought about America's two-party political system.
0: New season out on Spotify soon.
1: When John Quincy Adams was inaugurated as president in March of 1825, he took his oath of office on a law book rather than the traditional Bible. Perhaps he thought it might assert that his presidency was constitutionally backed. After all, his road to office hadn't shed its controversy.
0: The outcome of the election of 1824 was still deeply contested. No less than four Democratic Republicans ran for president that year, but none received a majority of electoral college votes. As such, a contingent election was held in the House of Representatives between the top three candidates, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, and William H. Crawford.
1: The fourth, Henry Clay, returned to his post as Speaker of the House of Representatives, where he held tremendous sway over the other congressional delegates.
0: During the run-up to the House election, Adams was able to garner Clay's influential support, which ultimately triggered the suspicion of Jackson's allies. They believed Clay made a deal with Adams in exchange for his vote, and Jackson had a particular bone to pick since he'd won the popular vote in the general election.
1: Needless to say, when John Quincy Adams clinched the contingent election, everyone was surprised.
0: Which soon turned to fury a few weeks later when Clay was announced as his Secretary of State. Jackson and his supporters decried that a corrupt bargain had been struck between the two politicians and that the election had been stolen from the American public.
1: Vowing revenge, Jackson's allies began to organize. John Quincy Adams had barely moved into the White House before Jackson's supporters were already scheming on how to unseat him in 1828.
0: Jackson's campaign arguably kicked off in October of 1825 when the Tennessee legislature selected him as its presidential nominee for 1828, the earliest nomination in U.S. history. When Jackson received word, he traveled to Tennessee's capital immediately to accept the honor in person.
1: There, he addressed the state's legislature eagerly, announcing that this time the people's voice must be heard or else evil may arise of serious importance to the freedom and prosperity of the republic. As if to cement his promise, he promptly announced his resignation from the U.S. Senate in order to fully focus on his campaign.
0: In reality, his selection was a blessing in disguise. He'd only joined the Senate to bolster his 1824 presidential bid anyway. Now, Jackson could drop the facade before it became a liability. If he stayed in Congress, he'd have to take stances on legislation that might not appeal to some of his supporters.
1: Jackson simply couldn't take any unnecessary risks. Although he had won the popular vote in 1824, it was clear he'd need every advantage to get an edge over Adams.
0: Meanwhile, despite his weak presidential mandate, Adams was determined to accomplish as much as possible before he had to return to campaigning. Perhaps he feared he would only be a one-term president due to his rising unpopularity stemming from the undying rumors of his corrupt bargain with Clay. He believed the American system, as developed by his Secretary of State, Henry Clay, included policies that would win over a country doubtful of his leadership. Federal support of infrastructure, like canals and roads, would support the nation's industry and increase prosperity.
1: Adams formally announced the plan to Congress on December 6, 1825, during what's now known as the State of the Union. In addition to his ambitious agenda, Adams proposed the creation of national institutions like a naval academy and university.
0: Fiscally, the plan was sound. The United States Treasury had a surplus of funds to support these goals, and Adams was careful to steer clear of any contentious topics like raising taxes
1: or tariffs. In fact, the new president's aims to improve education and promote the national economy were indisputably reasonable. But Adams would shoot himself in the foot, so to speak, as he closed his speech warning that America would doom itself to perpetual inferiority if it simply followed the will of the people instead of dreaming bigger.
0: His agenda faced immediate criticism from various political factions. Adams seemed destined to be scorned no matter what he did. Conservative legislators scoffed, deeming his plans grandiose and unconstitutional. They believed states should be in charge of their own infrastructure.
1: Southern politicians weren't pleased either. They believed Adams supported abolition and feared he would make the South dependent on the national government only to abolish slavery. And of course, pro-Jackson legislators were against any and all of Adams' policies, still viewing the president as a corrupt schemer. Even the vice president, John C. Calhoun, condemned his address, proclaiming it was utterly ultra
0: Ultimately, almost all of Adams' proposals were defeated in Congress. Not even a sensible proposal for a universal weights and measurement system made it through.
1: Adams was losing valuable time trying to mend fences as president, time Jackson and his allies were using to prepare for the next election. And upon the second try, they'd learn from their past mistakes, starting with building loyal political partnerships.
0: After Adams' controversial annual address, a strong anti-Adams coalition developed in Congress. The alliance had three branches, each surrounding one powerful politician.
1: First, there were the Calhounites, allies of the vice president, who scorned Adams' appointment of Henry Clay as secretary of state. They also condemned the president's expansion of federal power.
0: Second were the Crawfordites, a conservative group now headed by the powerful New York Senator Martin Van Buren. They believed in the old Jeffersonian ideals of small federal government and states' rights.
1: And last but certainly not least were the Jacksonians. Still bitter over the election of 1824, they believed it was time to make amends for what had corruptly been stolen from Andrew Jackson. While all three factions held very different political beliefs, they were united in their mutual distrust of the president.
0: Unfortunately for Adams, this meant he had essentially no support on Capitol Hill besides his fellow Northern lawmakers. The congressional election of 1826 only made things more polarized when the Democratic-Republicans, the party he and Jackson shared, split. Supporters of Jackson were dubbed the Democrats, while supporters of Adams were called National Republicans.
1: In large part, Jackson rallied his coalition around its animosity towards Adams. This sentiment then bled into Congress, where Jacksonites would loudly criticize anything the president proposed.
0: When the results came in from the 1826 election, the Democrats gained a number of seats in Congress, while Adams' National Republican Party lost power. It was the first time in United States history that Congress would be under control of the president's adversaries.
1: 1826 was just a taste of the animosity that awaited him in 1828 when he and Jackson would soon face off once again.
0: Almost immediately after the congressional election, Andrew Jackson's network began tapping its resources, hoping to drum up support for the former general. Specifically, New York Senator Martin Van Buren traveled to the South to garner backing from powerful Crawfordites and Calhounites.
1: Van Buren's mission was no secret in Washington, either. When the president requested that Van Buren visit in the spring of 1827, the savvy politician agreed. He had no trouble being cordial with his adversaries, and he knew his support for Jackson made Adams nervous. More than anything, Van Buren relished any opportunity to make the president sweat.
0: It worked. After the meeting, Adams woefully wrote in his journal, my own career is closed. My duties are to prepare for the end with a grateful heart and an unwavering mind.
1: But Adams' allies would not let their president fade into the background so easily. As the election of 1828 neared, They readied whatever they could wield against Jackson and his brash supporters.
0: Coming up, we'll see just how ruthless the mudslinging got on the campaign trail. Hi, it's Richard. Can't get enough history, politics, or true crime? Well then, do I have a new Spotify original from Parcast for you. It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding the world's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. If you're a fan of our podcast, Political Scandals, you'll love what Very Presidential has lined up, from torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder. Ashley will expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Andrew Jackson, JFK and more. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to get in your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
1: Now back to the story. As the
0: 1828 election approached, President John Quincy Adams had his hands tied, squabbling endlessly with a defiant Congress. Meanwhile, his opponent, Andrew Jackson, was making the most of his ample free time to shape his candidacy.
1: Jackson's organized bid was unlike any before it, creating many of the campaign tactics that still exist to this day. One of the most important tools in the general's campaign arsenal was a coordinated press network. With the help of Senator Martin Van Buren, Jackson and his allies funded a wide network of partisan newspapers. The editors collaborated to unite their message, all rolling out wildly supportive missives for Jackson.
0: Adams' network, on the other hand, was sorely lacking. Trying to remain presidential, Adams refused to fund newspapers or campaign literature, calling the practice altogether venal.
1: Then again, Adams quietly admitted that he couldn't afford to pay for organized press even if he wanted to. The president was allegedly so indebted that his properties were mortgaged. Meanwhile, Jackson was a millionaire— Without much room to maneuver, Adams hoped his allies would step into the ring on his behalf.
0: And fight they did. One pro-Adams publication, the Cincinnati Gazette, rehashed the controversy around Jackson's wife, Rachel. It accused the general of wooing her away from her first husband and inciting their divorce. The paper posed the question... Ought a convicted adulteress and her paramour husband be placed in the highest offices of this free and Christian land?
1: Meanwhile, several pro-national Republican papers went even further. They accused Jackson of being a slave trader. The practice by that time was largely decried in Washington as immoral. In an editorial, the Daily National Journal argued that while Jackson was popular at that moment, his past wrongdoings would tarnish the presidency forever, should he be elected.
0: The biggest attack on Jackson by far, though, was the distribution of coffin handbills, a series of pamphlets rendering Jackson as violent, immoral, and despotic. The handbills were published by the editor of Philadelphia's Democratic Press, John Binns, who was, by no coincidence, a friend of President Adams.
1: One handbill claimed that the former general executed six army men during the Creek War and even featured a drawing of Jackson stabbing a man in a duel. Then it went on to accuse Jackson of vicious killings in the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. While Jackson's troops had waged an attack that left 800 red-stick Native Americans dead, The handbill blamed every single death on Jackson alone.
0: Another pamphlet went so far as to accuse Jackson of cannibalism. This one alleged that he'd slaughtered 1,000 innocent Native Americans, slept amidst their corpses, and later woke up to dine on their bodies for breakfast.
1: Naturally, pro-Jackson papers didn't take this mudslinging lying down. They flung the accusations right back at Adams. To defend Rachel Jackson's honor, the United States Telegraph reported a romantic backstory to the couple's love affair. The paper claimed that Jackson had saved Rachel from an abusive husband. And more importantly, it reported that they had no idea that her divorce hadn't been finalized when they got together.
0: The Jackson campaign even went so far as to reprint a particularly excessive attack on Rachel's virtue from a pro-Adams paper. They distributed the article with a pamphlet that questioned the president's morals, stating that his attacks invade the domestic sanctuary and with reckless malice, drag forth to the public view a virtuous and pious lady.
1: No detail was too small to lob, it seemed. Later in the campaign, when Adams's staff submitted an expense report to Congress, one of the expenditures was for a billiards table pro-Jackson papers gleefully ran amok with this waste of taxpayer money.
0: Adams immediately corrected the report, stating that he'd paid for the table out of his own pocket. But the pro-Jackson papers had more attacks up their sleeves about the immorality of gambling. One article in the United States Telegraph raised the question, is it right that the president, as the head and father of a moral, religious, and money-saving people, should set such an example, should throw the weight of his character and situation on the side of games of hazard?
1: On top of the nitpicking of Adams' personal hobbies, there was also a strong anti-intellectual sentiment in Jackson's papers. Adams was constantly chided for being overly academic. The president's literary references in his speeches were often used against him. Papers snidely called him European. In the mind of the average American, who'd likely never travel to Europe, those across the pond were believed to be immoral, snobbish, and obviously un-American.
0: Perhaps the Jacksonian press had to overemphasize the supposed flaws in Adams' character because in comparison to the general, he lived a much less scandalous
1: life. So the Jackson papers spun stories that often devolved into slander. The New Hampshire Patriot alleged that Adams had furnished a Russian czar with a young American girl when he had served as magistrate in Russia. Despite the story's little bearing in reality, other pro-Jackson papers ran with it, calling Adams a pimp.
0: Predictably, the Democratic papers also kept railing against Adams and Clay's supposed corrupt bargain. Readers were told their president was a crooked insider, only looking out for his own gain.
1: Unsurprisingly, voters were swept up in the sensationalized press. The candidates' policies were nowhere near as provocative as their personas, and Jackson's campaign was about to take its flair for personality politics to the next level.
0: After accomplishing their goal of disparaging President Adams in the press, The Jacksonians wanted to build a cult of personality around their own leader. Pro-Jackson Papers published little information on his policies, instead focusing on painting him as a folk hero.
1: As they told it, Andrew Jackson, nicknamed Old Hickory, was a fearless frontiersman and war hero. As a relative political outsider, he was perfectly poised to wipe corruption out of Washington.
0: The Democratic press tried to underscore this by touting polls showing Jackson's popularity. Despite the fact that these straw polls only queried those already supporting Jackson, the papers gleefully used them to further the message that the general was the popular choice.
1: Beyond the press, Jackson's campaign distributed medals, buttons, and even commemorative plates with Jackson's image painted on, all of which were likely distributed to the lively tune of The Hunters of Kentucky. The folk ballad about Jackson's victory in the Battle of New Orleans was co-opted as the nation's first campaign song. The tune soon became massively popular across the country.
0: Jackson's campaign took every opportunity to grow support for the former general. Community leagues, nicknamed Hickory Clubs, were created to further the Jackson message at the local level. These groups would plant hickory trees in town squares, organize rallies and parades, and hand out propaganda.
1: No previous candidate in American history had shown so much effort to motivate average citizens to campaign on their behalf.
0: In comparison, Adams' campaign woefully lacked enthusiasm. Efforts to create community clubs that supported the president mostly fizzled out. And pro-Adams rallies only occurred in the North, not nationwide like Jackson's.
1: In light of this, it wasn't a total surprise that the president himself appeared to be losing his steam. He refused to travel to speak to potential voters, even when it would have surely helped his re-election chances. Adams flatly stated, "...this mode of electioneering suited neither my taste nor my principles."
0: With the controversy of 1824 lingering and the animosity of Congress at his back, Adams was utterly worn down. An entry in his diary from 1827 explained that despite the blessings he'd reaped as president, he felt an uncontrollable dejection of spirits. Even the president's wife, Louisa Catherine Adams, was worried about his presidential bid. She lamented that if her husband would just use his unostentatious manners on people instead of hiding away, he'd surely grow in popularity.
1: While Adams was moping, Jackson kept writing letters, taking meetings, and giving speeches, all the tactics his opponent had bested him at just four years before.
0: Corresponding from his home in Tennessee, the Hermitage, Jackson kept tabs on everything— From the Hickory Clubs, to his allies, to even his former foes, it was a careful, calculated strategy. He had to appear he wasn't campaigning for himself, which was considered ungentlemanly at the time, while still furthering his support under
1: the radar. But in January of 1828, he did take one special opportunity to connect with his base. For the 13th anniversary of the Battle of New Orleans, marches and feasts were held in the General's honor across the country.
0: To commemorate the anniversary, Jackson traveled to New Orleans to enjoy four days of festivities, joining nearly 35,000 of his supporters.
1: The celebrations delighted the press. Jackson's New Orleans visit was the first organized political event in United States history. It would remain unmatched in scope and size for decades to come.
0: In reply, Adams and his allies criticized Jackson for electioneering. The president dismissed the self-congratulatory event as pompous pageantry.
1: Adams' defensiveness may have been due to more drama occurring behind the scenes in his administration. Adams' own antagonistic vice president, John C. Calhoun, had chosen to support Jackson. The president was left scrambling for a replacement candidate and ultimately placed his secretary of state, Richard Rush, on the 1828 ticket.
0: While Adams believed Rush might attract more moderate conservative voters, the choice backfired. Like the president, Rush was a northerner, so the ticket's favor in the South dwindled
1: which was dire, granted the election was rapidly approaching and every vote mattered. The Adams candidacy appeared to be in tatters, but no one could be certain which nominee would triumph. That much had been proven in 1824.
0: Coming up, Americans cast their ballots, settling the Jackson versus Adams debate once and for all.
1: Now back to the story.
0: On October 31st, the election of 1828 began. Voting would continue throughout November. Then, the Electoral College would meet on December 3rd to place its votes.
1: Public excitement seemed to be behind the more populist candidate, Andrew Jackson. However, nearly everyone knew this didn't guarantee victory. Last time, Jackson had won the popular vote, but still failed to gain the presidency. A political expert like John Quincy Adams could once again find an ace to outmaneuver Jackson and secure a second term.
0: But this time around, appealing to the common electorate mattered more than ever before. By 1828, all but two of the 24 states in the Union chose their electors by popular vote, down from six in 1824.
1: In the days before balloting began, Jackson's local hickory clubs organized parades in cities across the nation. One such parade in New York was reported to be over a mile long, with participants carrying torches and portraits of Jackson.
0: Parade-goers also carried hickory brooms, a symbol of old hickory's promise to sweep out corruption in Washington.
1: Adams's supporters also tried to use parades to whip up public enthusiasm, but with much less success. In addition to being smaller than Jackson's parades, Adams's were decidedly antagonistic and morbid.
0: A parade in Philadelphia featured six coffins as a reference to the coffin handbills and Jackson's supposedly murderous rage. Old Hickory's allies always had a joke though. They quipped darkly that the coffins would soon contain the bodies of Adams and his cabinet members.
1: With this last note of bitterness to set the stage, the two men focused on getting voters to the polls. The Telegraph, a pro-Jackson paper, exclaimed, Let not a vote be lost. Let each free man do his duty, and all will triumph in the success of Jackson, Calhoun, and Liberty. Liberty. Some hickory clubs even dispensed food and drinks at polling places to attract voters.
0: Unfortunately, that worked a little too well. The polling places became rowdy with mobs of drunken Jackson supporters.
1: Adams' campaign took a more sedate path in encouraging voting. A pro-Adams paper in Maryland politely pleaded, We call on you, friends of religion and good morals, to turn out on the 10th of this month.
0: Not to say that Adams' allies were totally timid. His supporters levied threats when pleading fell short. Workers in New York were cautioned that a victory by Jackson could mean they'd soon be out of a job. Surely a Southerner would protect the interests of Southern workers over Northerners, so they best vote for Adams or else.
1: It seems the various calls to vote worked. Voter turnout in 1828 doubled, up to 57% from 27% in 1824. Despite Jackson's boasts about winning the popular vote four years before, the truth of the matter was that not many men actually voted that year.
0: In 1828, Jackson's campaign had done a significantly better job at energizing voters. The amplified partisanship and competition of the election meant the public was more likely to side strongly with one candidate or the other, and thus more likely to vote.
1: The only question that remained was which candidate had the newly engaged electorate chosen?
0: In a landslide victory, Old Hickory was chosen to be the seventh president of the United States. Jackson had received 178 electoral votes to Adams 83, winning the majority of the vote in 15 states compared to the incumbent president's paltry nine.
1: And to top it all off, the popular vote was also a clear and decisive victory for Jackson. He won more than 56%.
0: Jackson's organized and steady campaigning had finally paid off. Prior to this election, Voters had little interest in national elections and instead focused on local and state races, which they believed more directly affected them.
1: Jackson's efforts effectively reversed this thinking. After 1828, American voters were mobilized to pay attention to national races, much to the detriment of local contests.
0: The innovations of Jackson's campaign would go on to become the stepping stones to modern political parties. A centralized committee that united the campaign message, mass publicity events, and campaign paraphernalia, all born from the minds of Jackson's team, would continue for centuries.
1: John Quincy Adams, though deeply saddened by the loss, wasn't all that surprised. It had been a long time coming. He gloomily wrote in his diary, the sun of my political life sets in the deepest gloom.
0: Henry Clay, Jackson's fiercest political opponent, wasn't shocked either, but stood by his president in calling the election results a calamity.
1: Not that Andrew Jackson cared much for these reflections. He was thrilled to have won the presidency at long last, relieved that the alleged corruption of the 1824 election had finally been corrected.
0: Unfortunately for the new president-elect, tragedy was about to strike.
1: On December 22, 1828, Jackson's beloved wife, Rachel, died of a heart attack at the age of 61. A heartbroken Jackson buried her in a garden at the Hermitage two days later.
0: But the volatile Jackson was not only distraught, he was furious. Rachel had increasingly voiced worry about her health leading up to the campaign, so in light of her death, the grieving Jackson searched for an object for his rage.
1: He would blame Adams's slanderous press as the undeniable cause of Rachel's untimely death. Jackson claimed the stories about his wife had been so damaging as to weaken her heart. He angrily wrote, I can and do forgive my enemies, but those vile wretches who slandered her must look to God for mercy.
0: Adams, for his part, denied any involvement with the publications. Nevertheless, when Jackson arrived in Washington, D.C. one month later, he refused to pay the customary visit to the outgoing president.
1: It was then Adams's turn to be taken aback. It was an ungentlemanly slight. Jackson's behavior proved his belief that the former general was both unpredictable and uncouth. After consulting with his cabinet... Adams reciprocated the president-elect's rude conduct by refusing to attend Jackson's inauguration.
0: On March 4, 1829, as many as 21,000 supporters attended Jackson's swearing-in, even though without amplification, most of them would not be able to hear the new president's inaugural address.
1: In his short speech, Jackson promised to protect states' rights and wield the full power of his presidency. In conclusion, Jackson triumphantly rode away on horseback to an open house celebration at the White House. The
0: party proved somewhat disastrous. The crowd that descended, filled with well-wishers hoping to shake the new commander-in-chief's hand, was nearly a mob. The White House became so crowded, Jackson had to escape out of a window and stay the night at a local hotel. Back at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Guests with muddy shoes stood on the furniture. Thousands of dollars of china were broken by the night's end.
1: It was reported that the party didn't conclude until staff put alcohol on the White House lawn, luring the visitors away from the building. The staff reported the carpet smelled of cheese for months afterward.
0: Of course, Adam's allies, the National Republicans, had a field day criticizing the uncivilized scene. They gleefully compared the party to the sacking of Versailles and gave Jackson the nickname King Mob.
1: Though John Quincy Adams would leave Washington after Jackson's inauguration, he wouldn't stay away for long. The former president spent a couple years on his family farm licking his wounds. He even wrote an epic poem whose antagonist seemed to be a stand-in for Andrew Jackson.
0: But by 1830, Adams was ready to return to politics. Although it was considered improper for former presidents to run for public office, Adams swallowed his pride, feeling he still had much to accomplish. He would go to be elected as a representative from Massachusetts in the House for nine
1: consecutive terms. And unsurprisingly, throughout his tenure, Adams remained a fierce critic of Jackson and the Democrats. No longer needing to appease Southern voters, The former president became the leading figure in Congress in the fight against slavery.
0: Meanwhile, when Jackson filled the offices around him with his own loyalists, it was now Adams who had the opportunity to criticize him for his corruption, just as Jackson had done after the election of 1824. Their vicious fight had come full circle. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with number 10 on our countdown, Warren G. Harding's Ohio Gang, a tale of the politicians who took to graft and corruption in order to secure their careers in Washington.
1: You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream political scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type political scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time.
1: Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard.
0: It's the most powerful position in American politics and arguably the world. But behind the oath to preserve, protect, and defend lie dark secrets posed to leave some legacies in disgrace. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. Exposing wildly true stories about history's most high profile leaders. If you enjoy political scandals, you'll love this new series. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.